everybody, and welcome back to the Human Nutrition and Lifestyle Podcast. Today on the podcast, I'm very excited to introduce to you Mr. Brad Kearns, former professional triathlete, which I know a lot of you will be interested to hear about. So Brad, if you want to tell us a little bit about your background and what happened to you there in the 80s and 90s. Oh my gosh, it all seems like a blur now. It was so long ago, but yes, I have been an athlete my whole life and it was the centerpiece of my growing up in Los Angeles and such a wonderful uh, memory to have before the digital age, the age of hyper-connectivity and mobile devices, because my childhood, as many listeners can relate, if they're over, what, 35 years old or something, you know, there was a long block of time where we didn't have this constant uh, interference and distractibility. So we would be out there playing and playing sports and competing and just being active and exploring uh, the surrounding environment. And uh, boy, I really feel bad that um, that that shift in culture has occurred around the world. And uh, with my own kids, I tried so hard to get them outside and experiencing nature. And, you know, it's still there. The the, the trails and uh, the, the, the lakes and the rivers and the mountains and the beaches are all uh, to our at our disposal. But we just have to work harder today to make sure that we lead a healthy, active lifestyle. But for me, it was automatic. And uh, I became really interested in distance running. Uh, especially inspired by the great era in the United Kingdom of Sebastian Coe and Steve Oved and later Steve Cram and Peter Elliott and just the amazing uh, performances of these world-class athletes. And I was just captivated when I was in uh, high school years and became a very serious long-distance runner. I made the National Junior Olympics finals and uh, was you know, right there looking for a collegiate career in running. And then I kept getting injured and sick and overtrained when I was immersed into the uh, high level college running experience at University of California, Santa Barbara. So you know, it was kind of a devastating turning point in my life because I couldn't do what I love to do. Uh, because I was pushing my body too hard and, uh, you know, not being coached properly and cared for properly. And so that was kind of my first awakening as a young person to the importance of not just pursuing fitness goals and being super competitive and being willing to put the gas pedal on and, and train harder than the rest of your mates so that you could win the race, but also having a thoughtful approach, uh, eating the right foods, knowing how to rest and recover and relax and understanding that the discipline to do that is part of the discipline that it takes to become a champion. It's not just the discipline to put on your bloody shoes when it's raining and sleeting outside, but also to sit home and watch more television and put your feet up higher on the pillows when it's a time for recovery. And so uh, I transitioned away from the, the collegiate running experience to this wonderful new sport of triathlon uh, back in the 80s, it was just emerging and the great athletes were just coming uh, coming to the forefront. And you heard about the Hawaii Ironman and then this professional circuit and these races were appearing. So I was just a young guy, but I love this new sport. And I would be out there uh, learning how to swim and pedal my bicycle. And of course, I had the running stuff down, but I wasn't getting injured anymore because I was balancing everything with the different sports. So at about the time that I graduated college, I was uh, immersed into this career in the accounting world. I was working for the world's largest accounting firm in a high rise in downtown Los Angeles and commuting through rush hour traffic and wearing this uncomfortable suit and tie every day. And after 11 weeks, I you know, realized that this was not my calling and I had to do something about it. I was just so frustrated. And so I bust out of the building, I announced my retirement and I proclaimed myself ready to 
train for a career to become a professional triathlete. And that was kind of a ridiculous notion at the time. Uh, I sold it to my parents. So they let me come and crash in my childhood bedroom and minimize my expenses. But it was a great moment in the life of this young man because I was finally doing what I wanted. And I had this tremendous passion to push and challenge my body and improve and learn how to do things the right way and learn from experts. Uh, I met a, a good friend, Andrew McNaughton, who later became one of the world's great professional triathletes. So we kind of went on this journey together where we would train really, really hard and learn what the body could take and what our limits were. And we'd go out and ride our bicycles 200 miles because we thought maybe that would make us fitter athletes and we'd break through these mental barriers. And so a funny thing happened uh, early on to my my triathlon career, where when I started, of course, coming out of the, the suit and tie in the office building, uh, the, the great pros of the time were miles ahead of me, literally, they were one or two miles ahead of me at the end of the finish line, you know, I was five or 10 minutes behind the standard that was set to legitimately call yourself a professional and earn money and all those things. But I didn't care. And I wasn't caught up in the superficial aspects of being a professional athlete where you're measuring and judging your performance and seeing how much money and what contracts you can make and all these kind of things that kind of divert us from the purity and the love of the sport and the pure motivation, I call it. And so I have a, you know, a takeaway one-liner that I like to share when I talk to young athletes or anyone interested in listening. And that is that results happen naturally when your motivation is pure and pure meaning that you're loving the process, you're loving the journey, you're allowed to compete. You can push yourself really hard and want to win really badly, but you can't attach your self-esteem to the outcome of what you are doing. Otherwise, you have a tendency to struggle, suffer, get frustrated, make bad decisions, get down on yourself and discouraged, and all those things that can throw an athlete off of their uh, their center of power. So for me, I was just this happy-go-lucky guy. I didn't have a coach. There was no information or magazine articles or books about how to train. And so I just kind of listened to my body and I had a very intuitive approach to training. And I started to get better and better and better. So I went from 23rd place to 17th place. And I was so excited to be 17th. And then I would get fifth in a tiny little race where there wasn't elite caliber there. And then I'd go back and get 12th in a big race. And the whole thing was so exciting to me that it was uh, en enabled me to continue to improve naturally. So I'm, I'm telling a long story here, but we'll have a little pause and then, then Matthew can check in to make sure we're, we're listening to the right podcast, right? Uh, but at the end of my uh, first season as a rookie professional triathlete, I went to this huge race at the end of the year. Uh, it was the first meeting of the world's number one duathlete, Kenny Souza, who was undefeated, had never lost a race, and the world's number one ranked triathlete, Scott Molina. And they formed this new event that was a long distance run, bike, run. So we ran 10K, bicycled 62, and ran another 10K out in the hot, windy desert of Palm Springs, California. And I was absolutely uh, out of my mind there and had this beautiful, perfect race. And I beat the top guys in the world and I crossed the finish line. No one knew who I was. I didn't even have a, a kit on. I was just coming across the line with a bare chested. And then I was mobbed by the, the media and the uh, officials there. And they said, they had two questions for me. They said, one, uh, what's your name? And then two, uh, did you complete the whole course? Because they didn't know who this guy was and they didn't know where these, these top athletes that were expected to, to be neck and neck and what we could see who was superior from the, the undefeated guy. Uh, so that kind of set me on a, uh, a very long course where uh, I realized that I was able to 
make this a profession and uh, dedicate my life. And I had a nine year career on the pro circuit. I traveled all over the world. Uh, my highlights were uh, that I was US national champion and I achieved a number three world ranking uh, in 1991. And of course, uh, that's the good stuff that I just told you. But also in, the, in this journey, uh, what happened was many times uh, I got into my head and out of that pure, uh, free-spirited uh, young athlete that I describe uh, in, in my first year, and I would get you know, caught up in the business aspects of it. My ego would get caught up in the mix. I'd have um, you know, a discouraging result and get down on myself and try a different training method and you know, go off the things that had worked for me before because I was frustrated, anxious, and insecure. So I had to learn the hard way. Uh, over this uh, arduous journey to keep coming back to what worked for me and be intuitive and be patient with my body and all those things that it's very difficult for any athlete to learn. But when you learn it in a competitive environment, oh my goodness, it's, you know, the lessons of life are learned, you know, more dramatically and more powerfully in athletics than perhaps anywhere else. That's brilliant. That's a, it's a great story. And it's, it's super to listen to somebody like you talk about it and, and highlight it like that. And like you said towards the end, uh, that going through the stages that you went through, then you perhaps didn't have all the wisdom that you do now, all, all the, the training that you could have been doing that you wasn't doing, all the nutrition that perhaps you should have been doing that maybe you wasn't doing, yet you were still able to excel. But tell us a bit about how you've seen things change from perhaps when you first started to, to things now, including um, training, if you like to start with training. Wow. You know, that question... Uh gives me pause because of course there's many things that have changed but the most frustrating thing for me is right now here in 2020 uh, some things still haven't changed and it's incredibly ridiculous frustrating and mind-boggling that with all this advancement in society and all the technology and the self-quantification we have we still see these patterns uh, emerge especially in the high level endurance, uh, you know, uh, extreme fitness communities like CrossFit, like triathlon, like ultra running. Um, I talk to young athletes all the time who have been destroyed by the extremely competitive, intense collegiate running environment where the coach goes and trains them too hard because they have this pack of wolves and they know that out of 25 young men who are all talented and driven and focused, um, if five of them start to perform well, then the program is successful. And they don't care about the 12 or 13 that they destroy who you know don't adapt as well as the guys in the front of the pack. And so it's, it's this survival of the fittest mentality. Uh, people walk into the gyms and the, the trails and the roads of the world with this struggle and suffer mindset that I have to push myself so hard that I'm fatigued, exhausted, and starving when I get home. Otherwise, my training methods are not as effective. So uh, that's the stuff that haven't, hasn't changed. And I'm working really hard to, you know, share my voice and tell people that there's a kinder, or, kinder, gentler approach to training and to improvement and to progress where you always preserve your health in pursuit of fitness. And that means that you don't have to slam yourself over and over in the, pro in, in the name of getting fit. Yeah, we've spoken before on the podcast, I have to, trying to tell people that uh, make sure you're working at a low intensity for the majority of the time. Yet, like you say, it's taking a long time to get it through to people that 
um, building mitochondria, which is when you're working at a, a lower level, is a lot more beneficial for you over the long period of time. If you're looking for longevity and you're looking to get the most out of yourself, you must train low and not end up hovering in those medium zones where you're just going through the motions, making sure that it's hard, but, but not hard enough or maybe too hard for a low intensity. You need to really make sure that you go low intensity, low, 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 miss out that middle zone and then smash some high intensity stuff at the other end. Perhaps you can just bring that together, what I'm saying, and make it a little bit more interpersonal towards yourself. Yeah, excellent. Very well said. Uh, Six-time Ironman champion Dave Scott uh, coaches people, and he's been, been a prominent coach for decades. And he says the real problem uh, that triathletes get into is these workouts that are, quote unquote, kind of hard. And so that kind of hard workout in those in-between zones where you're producing a lot of stress hormones, you're breaking down uh, muscle tissue, creating some cellular damage and some waste products. And most particularly, you're exceeding your aerobic maximum heart rate and drifting into the anaerobic zones. And I don't, I'm not talking about the smashing part where we'll talk about that in a second, where you're really pushing your body and trying to achieve a fitness breakthrough with explosive performance. But it's that drifting above the maximum fat burning zone, which can really uh, cause destruction to uh, an endurance athlete trying to improve and, and preserve their health. And so we have this, uh, we, we can quantify this in laboratory, but it's really simple to use the Maffetone 180 minus H formula, but there is a heart rate that correlates with your maximum fat oxidation per minute. So you're burning the maximum number of fat calories per minute at a certain heart rate, a certain effort level. And if you were to go faster than that, you're going to burn more calories per minute, the faster and faster you go, right? If you're sprinting for a minute, you're going to burn X number of calories. And if you're jogging, you're going to burn much fewer than that. But there's a point, if you can envision a graph with a slope, uh, you're going to hit your maximum fat burning and then going faster and faster, you're going to burn fewer fat calories per minute and more glucose calories. And so the the physiology here is important because what we want to do, like you described, is build that mitochondria, build that bigger engine, and be patient and allow the, uh, the fat-burning enzymes to take center stage so that you can go and go and go for miles, even at a faster pace when it comes time to race, without falling apart and collapsing on the side of the road. So uh, the concept of training is pretty simple, but when we put it out there to the world, um, people get frustrated because they want to have that instant gratification of pushing themselves, of having that sensation that occurs when you go kind of hard and then you get back and you're filled with endorphins and you feel like you can high five your, your mate because you just ran up to the top of the trailhead in a faster time than the previous week. And boy, it'd be really nice to expand our perspectives of what fitness means to have that progressive approach where you're being uh, kind to your body body, you're able to adapt and benefit from these workouts without delay caused by uh, the recovery time caused by a, a workout that's slightly too stressful. So that's kind of the low end in a nutshell. And the heart rate, the magic heart rate, this is promoted by Dr. Phil Maffetone better than anyone else for decades. And people are finally listening to him now. Back in the 80s, he emerged on the scene as this quiet guy, this mysterious guy who was coaching the greatest triathletes in the world, Mark Allen and Mike Pig, and later Tim DeBoom. And so these guys are winning all the races by going slower in training. And 
uh, were starting to pay attention as I continued to get my ass kicked by Alan and Pig on the circuit and asking them questions. And Mark Allen in particular, I relate this one conversation on my, my podcast when I interviewed him, uh, the Get Over Yourself podcast. It was a great show. And you know, I, I remember cornering him at a race and saying, you know, almost near tears and saying, Mark, I'm dedicating my entire life to the sport. I sleep for 12 hours a day. I train for the waking hours. I'm eating right. I'm doing everything right. And you're still destroying me by, you know, by leaps and bounds. What can I do? What's, what's going on? And he said, you know, you really have to slow down. And by slowing down, you build that mitochondria. You give your system a break from all the stress hormones. You preserve your immune function, all the things that cause athlete setbacks like injuries and illnesses. And that's kind of a turning point in the middle of my career where I took it easier. I started training by myself because I moved out of Los Angeles to a small town in Northern California. And I just would pedal around the mountains and have a good time and look at that heart rate number of 180 minus your age. I don't know if I even said that yet, but your maximum aerobic heart rate is around 180 minus your age in beats per minute. So let's say I'm 55 years old, which I am, <laughs> 180 minus my age is 125 beats per minute. Now, for me, I'm not uh, a world-class athlete anymore. I'm pretty fit, but I'm, I'm not that fit. Uh, 125 is not fast. That correlates to around nine minutes, 15 seconds per mile, maybe even slower right now. And so I'm jogging along and I listen to this beeper alarm go off. That means I'm going too fast and I'm, I'm in danger of exceeding the aerobic zone, the fat burning zone. So I have to continually slow myself down, maybe even break into a, a fast walk and then back to a steady jog after the upgrade is over. And for, for most people out there who are sub elite level athletes, um, the maximum aerobic pace is not very fast. And it will be very frustrating because yes, I know you can go 10 miles at a much faster pace and maybe be home in a, a, a you know, a, a a minute, an hour and 20 minutes, but it's going to take you an hour and 38 because you're honoring your aerobic heart rate. And those are the kind of things that we have to be patient with and understand that this is the magical process of fitness happening. And I will make a quick plug uh, in case you're that highly competitive type and you don't believe this guy talking on a podcast. Uh, I'm sure you're, many of your listeners are familiar with uh, Iliad Kipchoge, who is the greatest marathon runner of all time. Uh, the Kenyan who has won the Olympics, uh, broke the world record, uh, ran that uh, historic one hour and 59 minute marathon in the uh, made for record uh, unofficial approach. But, um, you know, he's pushed uh, the limits of in human endurance, uh, arguably uh, beyond anyone who's ever lived on the planet. And he published his training log on the internet a few years ago for people to scrutinize and some exercise physiology guys who really are into the science uh, did some calculations and analyzed everything very carefully. And they discovered this shocking insight that he is always training within himself at all times, at every workout, week in and week out. He's very, very consistent. He runs 120 to 130 miles a week with hardly any tapering or breaks in that. But every single workout, he's cool, calm, and collected and within his capabilities, correlating to around 80% of his maximum uh, potential, maximum heart rate. And so that's very closely aligned with this maximum aerobic function, this math number I'm talking about, 180 minus your age. Now, if he was running down the, uh, the, the street in, in Brighton or uh, on the river in London, and you saw this guy uh, getting ready for his race, you'd be like, wow, look how fast he's going. He's really going hard, that's amazing. But in terms of his output and his percentage of maximum, 
It's the same as you doing a jog walk. It's the same as you going slower than you've ever gone for your 10 miler because you're trying this new way of training. So we have to have the, we have to make that comparison of the relative energy expenditure of an elite athlete sailing along the boulevard at that five minutes and 30 second miles is just, just like you doing jog walking instead of your usual jogging all the way through. So that's a big insight for everyone to appreciate that the elite athletes uh, in many ways train less strenuously than you and your uh, your hobbyist uh, approach. That's right. Yeah, you see the athletes running along at a certain speed and you're thinking, whoa, they must be absolutely nailing themselves. They must have their foot straight on the pedal, right foot to the floor. But actually, no, they are holding back. They are in reserve. Even in some races, some athletes will say, look, I was just holding back. Yet they're still traveling like the higher end of five minute miles and six minute miles of, of which we uh, myself would be nearly at a sprinting pace, you know, to hold that pace, but you've got to have it in perspective to yourself as well. And, and talking, going back to your heart rate as well, always make sure that you personalize it for yourself, because like you said, yours, your math heart rate comes out at one one twenty five. I think you said, well, mine's 143. So then nowadays we have the Strava and all the different platforms and things. You, you think, oh, I must keep up with my mates, whatever my mates are doing, I need to be doing. So he's, his heart rate's 143. So my heart rate must be 143. That's not the case. Uh, it has to be personalized and you have to make sure that you're training for your level, your age, your standard and, and things like that. I'm pleased, you, I'm pleased you put it out there like that. So in terms of training, then alongside training goes nutrition. So I'm sure in your early days of triathlon things, people were not talking about nutrition or perhaps they were, maybe they were talking about things like carb loading and, and, and things like that. But how have you seen, if you have seen, hopefully you have seen that change over the years? Well, yeah, it's, um, it's funny to reflect on, you know, the, 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 the best knowledge of the time and the best practices of the time were something, of course, I was very interested in because I wanted to win. I didn't care if you told me to eat uh, seaweed. Oh, wait a second. Seaweed's one of the most nutritious foods on the planet. If you told me to eat seaweed, I would have eaten seaweed. I wish someone had told me to eat seaweed instead of a uh, high carbohydrate grain-based diet. But yes, back then uh, was the age of getting that nasty fat out of the diet and you know, uh, emphasizing the whole grains like pasta and whole wheat bread and, and all that other stuff. Uh, so that would have been nice to relive those years of heavy, heavy training without the carbohydrate dependency diet and all the massive intake of carbohydrate calories that we consume. But I also remember times where, uh, you know, I, we ride, uh, I, I've ridden a hundred miles uh, with just water. And so I was actually a highly fat adapted, fat adapted athlete at the time because of my training and the, you know, the high level of conditioning that I attained, even with this crappy diet where I you know, have these giant cereal bowls in the morning and then big heaping plates of pasta. And of course was also squeezing in some of those nutritious animal foods that I'm all about now, the, you know, the ancestral style diet where we're eating eggs and, and steak and uh, good you know, nutrient dense foods rather than just the, the grains on the, uh, on the, on the baseline and then going and getting frozen yogurt in the evening and all those things. So if you're burning a massive amount of calories throughout the day, uh, it's less 
uh, traumatic for the body to process all that because you're a lot of it's going to replenish glycogen and you're you know you're burning a lot of energy. So I think the real problem that we've seen uh, in metabolic health on the planet in recent decades and starting to identify it in, very accurately is when you're over consuming processed carbohydrates and then sitting on your butt all day and it's causing uh, these disease patterns, metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance, obesity, type two diabetes, things like that. So I think I would have definitely had a performance advantage had I emphasized uh, more nutritious foods, uh, but it's probably, it could be overblown. So I don't want to, uh, you know, go too far deep into what ifs and wouldn't it be nice if I was having uh, sardines and liver sliced frozen liver every morning or, or what have you. But, um, you know, the, the inflammatory nature of all the carbohydrates that athletes like to throw down. And these are still uh, big product categories today, Matthew, the energy bar world and the energy gels and the blocks and the drinks and the the professional athletes are on television drinking down, uh, you know, vitamin water and, and things like that. Uh, and, and, you know, we're all going to the, um, the, the, I don't know if Starbucks has pervaded the United Kingdom like it has here in America, where there's one on every third block of the every city. Uh, but, you know, we're slamming down so much processed carbohydrate that has no uh, nutritional value. And so that's something we could all reflect on could be better. And then of course, the uh, refined industrial seed oils have now come to the forefront as the single most health destructive agent you can consume. Uh, they inflict oxidative damage upon the body, uh, accelerate the aging process, increase risk of cancer, heart disease, and particularly uh, insulin resistance. So if you're consuming a lot of these vegetable oils, or they call them, or industrial seed oils, uh, it inhibits your ability to burn stored body fat. Therefore, you are obligated to get your energy from repeated doses of dietary carbohydrates. So a lot of people who are trying to go keto and get off the carb bandwagon and, and start burning body fat and losing weight and looking, uh, you know, looking to uh, pursue those body composition goals. If these oils are still finding their way into the diet, it's throwing off your cellular function, your metabolism, uh, such that you're destined to fail unless you clean up the diet. How do we do that? Well, first, it's easy to throw away the, the bottled sources of these oils where it says right on the label what you're consuming, that this garbage, uh, but also uh, dining out and eating uh, prepared foods and processed foods and packaged foods, most of them contain these uh, terribly health-destructive uh, industrial seed oils. So we really have to be vigilant and clean that up and start eating natural, nutritious foods. Yeah, like you say, a lot of it is down to advertising and promotion and things with these big companies. But as you hit on early there, you said about becoming fat adapted with exercise. And that's why these professional athletes can get away with having the energy bars and the gels and things like that and pumping them into the body like it's it's what they do every day. They train super hard every single day. So they're already a step ahead. They're already becoming fat adapted using their exercise, using their training to help their body to deplete their glycogen stores, deplete their glucose. So they are tapping into their fat, regardless of how many calories and well, not regardless of, but they'll struggle to take in as many calories as they can burn in a day so they can get away with having all these energy bars and, and a lot of energy dense food as well. But bringing it down to um, a lesser level, like our, our amateur tri triathletes or amateur athletes, and then, like you say, to the people who are just working office jobs every single day, 
eating energy dense foods, you're never going to get into fat burning mode. So you have to use your nutrition and you have to refine your diet to do that. So how does somebody then go from perhaps having a high carb diet, something they know they're doing, they're eating all these energy dense foods, feeling like they're hungry all the time. How do they then go from saying, okay, Matthew and Brad, perhaps you're talking a bit of sense here. Maybe I'll listen to you. How do they then go to eating a more lower carb and more energy dense, uh, more nutrition dense way of eating? Yeah, that's a nice question to pose. And I don't often hear it asked in that perspective of how do, how do I switch if I'm interested and want to make some incremental steps and not backslide by doing too extreme of a transition where that's it, tomorrow I'm throwing away all the junk in my cupboard. Now, I guess there's a few things to uh, emphasize here. And one of them is that out of the gate, you have to be extremely dedicated and committed to wanting to improve your diet and improve your life. Because if we try to cut back a little bit and try to only go to Starbucks once a day instead of twice, or you know, only have dessert a few nights a week, or uh, some of those uh, strategies where it's this uh, trickle approach, um, it is now shown by science that these foods have addictive properties, particularly grains and sugars. And so if you're trying to get the sugar out of your diet, it's really quite easy if you just make a commitment for a few weeks to transition away from those comfort foods and eat other foods that are truly nutritious, truly nutrient dense, and give you that deep satisfaction in your brain and in your, uh, at the cellular level where you feel uh, satisfied after eating a delicious omelet or a steak, or like I mentioned this uh, sliced frozen liver, I'm trying to include that more in my diet. I can't say it's the most delicious favorite tasting I've ever had, but when you have a few slices, the nutritional value is li of liver is perhaps unrivaled by any food on the planet. And this is a big practice in the ancestral health scene that's getting more and more popular. The carnivore diet scene is talking about the nose to tail and the importance of eating these organs that we're pretty much unfamiliar with. Uh, but when you eat something that's truly nutrient dense, like uh, an omelet with six eggs and big slices of avocado and the sauteed vegetables and perhaps some uh, meat included inside, you are gonna feel uh, satisfied like you can't even imagine or compare to when you sit down on the couch and have too many chips from the bag or have a pint of ice cream or things that are just uh, completely uh, instant gratification with no nutritional density. So out of the gate, it's a big idea to say, look, I'm going to ditch these sugars and also the refined grain foods, which turn into sugar as soon as you consume them. So breads, uh, rice, cereal, uh, pasta, all the wheat products and the, uh, the process and packaged products that are made with whole, uh, refined grains. Um, boy, you know, getting rid of those and saying, I'm going to do this for three weeks. And instead of starving or struggling along or suffering, what you're going to do instead is reach for these extremely nutritious and healthy snacks. For example, if you're having a hankering for your usual energy bar in the afternoon, you can reach for a handful of macadamia nuts or slice up an avocado and eat it straight or any number of things. 85% uh, or higher dark chocolate is a wonderful snack. It's, it's a treat. It feels like an indulgence, but it's giving you a whole bunch of uh, nutritional density and many benefits and also that, you know, that satisfaction that you get when you have just a, a small amount. So we have to escape the carbohydrate dependency uh, paradigm. 
and it's a clean break, I believe is the best way. And maybe, uh, you know, that could be disputed. Maybe your next guest is going to say, cut 5% back each day until you get to 100. That's only 20 days. Well, I don't know. I've seen in real life, um, people struggle when they allow these things to leak back into the diet. So I'm in favor of saying, look, I'm going to take three weeks. I'm going to break free from carb dependency. I'm going to eat whatever I want on the approval list. So it's not a time to you know, try to lose weight and escape from carbohydrate dependency. It's a time to satisfy and nourish yourself like you never have before in your life, such that it's extremely easy and you don't have a sweet tooth in the evening because your uh, evening meal was so nutritious that you ate two hours before that. Yeah, that's great. And and to be fair, to, to bring that back to that previous point, I have seen both ways, Brad. I have seen people do it less 5% here, less 5% there. Less. But I'll tell you something, it takes a long, long time. Even I have even seen it take years over over a year, you know, to do it. If you are gradually thinking, oh, I'll just do a little bit here, I'll just do a little bit there, it can take a long, long time. And and perhaps people lose interest before they even get to where they need to be. So by you saying, look, just give me three weeks. I'll, uh, I want you to just go cold turkey, basically three weeks, nail it down, and then you're away then. Because although keto is very, very strict in the three weeks to start off with, then you could st- perhaps, depending on your lifestyle, depending on your goals, start adding other things back in. None of the processed food, nothing like that. But other kinds of leafy green vegetables, big you know, bits of carbohydrates, especially if you're training, things like that, sweet potatoes, you know, start adding those back in. But you need that reset. You need that three-week reset straight away. But like I say, I have seen it done with the 5% here, 5% there. But be prepared. If you're listening to this and thinking, I will knock off 100 grams of carbs this week and then 100 grams of carbs next week, be prepared to go long, 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 because that's that's the long way to do it. So people who, who do do it straight away, who think, right, I'm, I've got my head in the game. I'm going for this three weeks. Okay. After that three weeks, or even maybe during that three weeks, perhaps they're thinking, well, I'm feeling full. I'm feeling satiated here. I'm only managing to have one meal, maybe two meals, maybe two meals and a little snack every day. So then that brings about something called intermittent fasting. And intermittent fasting is really, really good. That's obviously we're talking something like 16-8 or, or, or 18-6, something like that. Explain to people a bit more about what intermittent fasting is and why this can really help them. <laughs> I love your questions, man. We're getting these people so healthy that the... Um... The, the recording is going to be archived forever. It's like, this is, this is all you need to succeed here, people. Uh, you know what I call it, Matthew, instead of intermittent fasting? Okay. Oh, I, 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 just, I just call it fasting. Fasting, yes. Yeah. You're either fasting or eating. Yeah, true. I don't know. I don't know if it'll catch on. I'm I'm trying to <laughs> change uh, cultural norms, and uh, but it's kind of a funny uh, term because um, we're so we're so centered and focused upon eating that now we come up with a term called intermittent fasting uh, instead of you know what's what's happening naturally. And if we go back to the ancestral health movement and the great leaders and the great science that's coming forth, um, we realize that you know our experience as humans through evolution. Uh, was predicated upon getting really, really good at burning stored body fat and uh, going on without regular meals. And so these regular meals are are a product of modern society and the human is highly adapted to, uh, you know, eating uh, only at times when the food is available and working really hard and being productive and energetic and focused even without food. And so that's why 
keto has become so popular because if you restrict carbs and uh, go on uh, long fasting periods, your body's going to make these ketones and your brain feels wonderful and you get an anti-inflammatory benefit. Uh, but just to simplify things, depending on the, the level of the listener, some of you guys already know all this stuff and you're uh, nodding your head. And some of you are wondering, uh, is fasting dangerous? Should I do it? I've heard bad things like my metabolism's going to slow down. So I'm really uh, in favor of advocating a simple approach that feels sustainable, comfortable, and something that uh, personalizes for you to your preference. And just for an example, this may not be the way that you're gonna go for it, uh, but we have this term called WHEN, which stands for when hunger ensues naturally. So you wake up in the morning and you wait until you experience true sensations of hunger to consume your first meal, your break dash fast, break fast meal. And that's just an interesting way to get started on this path of changing your mentality to realize that uh, regular meals are a modern, uh, a modern creation that are in many ways uh, in conflict with our human genetic expectations for health and have a lot of health uh, destruction properties rather than health benefits. So when you are fasted, when you're in a fasted state, uh, this is when your body works most efficiently. This is when your immune function is heightened. This is when your cell repair, there's a term called autophagy. That's when your cell repair uh, abilities are heightened. Uh, there's another term called apoptosis, which is the program death of dysfunctional cells. So your cancer protection, your immune function, your anti-inflammatory properties that are going on in your body and your antioxidant manufacturing properties and mechanisms are all heightened when you're in a fasted state. So the body literally works best in a fasted state. There is no superfood. There is no acai bowl with the antioxidant bomb or the freshly squeezed juices. I don't know if you have these facilities uh, in, in UK, but you know, all around the, the hip trendy areas of Los Angeles or San Francisco or the big cities, you can go and get freshly squeezed ginger, kale, celery, carrot, beet, and the antioxidant bomb into your body. So you're super healthy, but the antioxidant benefits of fasting and and the production of the internal master antioxidant called glutathione will blow away anything that you can consume. So the first uh, epiphany or the mindset breakthrough is that when I skip a meal, I am contributing to my health. We could do like a sticky note and put it on the wall. When I skip a meal, I am getting healthier, not less healthy. Okay. Uh, now that said, it has to be comfortable and sustainable. So if you're somehow have been reading a book or listening to a podcast and deciding, okay, I need to eat less frequently, I need to start skipping meals, uh, and you're hungry, tired, cranky, and all these symptoms of uh, poor function, which may very well happen if you've been eating for 37 years a certain way, and now you're going to start fasting. So what we want to do is tiptoe in this direction. I talked about cold turkey with getting the shit out of your diet. So hey, if you're getting called back to work right now and you have to uh, stop this podcast, cut the crap out of your diet. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. Um, that's one segment. The other segment is to tiptoe in the direction of getting more comfortable with fasting and with burning stored body fat. So I don't want you to uh, elicit huge sensations of hunger, crankiness, fatigue, poor cognitive function. If you're feeling like that, go eat something nutritious and, and carry on with your day. So go, going back to the concept of when, if you wake up 
and you naturally feel a, a strong sensation of hunger at 7.47 in the morning, then go ahead and prepare your omelet and enjoy yourself with a nutritious meal that's gonna sustain you for hours afterward without that uh, spike from the, the processed foods, the blood sugar spike and the insulin release, that's absolutely fine. But if we can look uh, and aspire over time to get better at going long periods of time between meals, uh, to get better at avoiding the idle snacking that we sometimes do when we're bored or we need a cognitive break and we think we're hungry for a snack, but really what we're hungry for is some sunshine outdoors or even if it's cloudy, uh, you know, some movement where we're walking around the office courtyard or if we're working at home now, walking around the neighborhood for 12 minutes and coming back to the workplace and feeling alert and energized. So kind of getting out of this habit of reaching for external calorie sources to sustain energy and getting better at uh, going periods of time without meals. Then you have a super nutritious meal that's going to sustain you for hours like the omelet I described. So it shouldn't be that much trouble to continue on. Uh, without having to nibble on energy foods and the things that have been, you know, pushed down our, our throats and into our brains with billboards and internet advertising and magazine advertising and people telling us that this is the way to be healthy. Fasting yeah, is yeah. the, fasting is king. Yeah, yeah, fasting is king. And uh, I like the way you say it like that, because I could add to the post-it note section and just put eat when you're hungry, you know, because it, a lot of people just think, you know, like you said, bored, sat there in front of their telly, that that's the time to be eating. No, the time to be eating is when you're hungry and not just peckish. I mean, hungry, you know. So if, you, if you're having the sensation of feeling like, oh, perhaps I'm hungry, maybe I could nibble on something, maybe I could eat something, give it 10 minutes. I always say to people, look, just give it 10 minutes. Give yourself time to think, am I really hungry? Is my body really shouting out for food? Because... Sometimes your brain will say, because your brain really wants to burn glucose and really wants the glucose to fuel it, it will say to you, look, mate, I'm hungry. You know, I need something. But if you just give it 10 minutes just to calm down and just to have a moment and then your stomach, if you are truly hungry, your stomach will then take over and tell you, yes, your brain is correct. Let's listen. We are hungry and have something to eat. But if you just run to the, the fridge every time you think, oh, actually, I'm hungry straight away, then you you deemed to fail there but and also with a lot of the triathletes and athletes as well that that we work with um they'll say look i get up in the morning and i am hungry i can't carry on with my intermittent fast i'm trying to do 16 8 but i am hungry in the morning and usually when we get down to it it's the fact that they've exercised in the evening and they are requiring food they're re requiring they need to build their glycogen stores back up they're low it's your body's way of telling you look, you know, I'm hungry. I need nutrient dense food. I need nutrition. I need my vitamins, my minerals. I need my glucose. I need to refuel these stores ready for the next time you're going to push me in an exercise. So I would say eat, forget the 16, eight, listen to your body and eat that 16, eight will come. If you, if you want to follow the fasting, I'm not going to call it intermittent fasting anymore. I'm just going to call it fasting. <laughs> like you say. If you want to follow the fasting, that's fine. Keep doing it, but listen to your body at the same time. I think it's very important to say that. Now, I just want to, uh, I just want to take it, take it back again a little bit about this uh, explosive side of, of training as well. Mm. I think we touched really, really well on the low intensity, but the explosive stuff, because, I know you now have got into high jump and uh, speed golf as well. I looked, <laughs> that was really, really good. I looked into that. I saw your hole in your, your fastest hole ever. That was brilliant. And uh, it's explosive activity. 
And tell us a bit why that's important and how that can help everybody, not just athletes, but every single person can do explosive activity because it takes up no time at all. You can do it every day. Oh, thank you. You're going to get me fired up now talking about the uh, explosive high intensity exercise, which is so fun and uh, inspiring and, and contributing to overall health, longevity, anti-aging benefits. It's really the use it or lose it uh, concept that's at play here. Pretty simple. Oh, but back to the uh, fasting for a moment. You're talking about the athlete. Uh, we have to recognize that fasting is starving the cells of energy to prompt a health response or an adaptive benefit. So you're gonna starve your cells of energy. That's when they make more mitochondria to become more efficient at processing whatever energy they have. Now, a, a, a challenging workout is having the same effect. You're starving your cells of energy or depleting the energy in your cells after you uh, push yourself for a certain period of time or go for an endurance workout of uh, hours, hours in length. So fasting and, and working out uh, vigorously are on the same uh, kind of uh, paradigm. And so when you're putting those together or juggling both of those uh, at times, it can become overly stressful. Um, and I think one way that we can monitor or watch out for that is to look at our body composition and our goals along those lines. So if you're already at a healthy body composition and you're messing around with fasting and uh, performing difficult workouts and trying to be a competitive fitness person or trying to go as a female from 12% body fat down to nine because you wanna get on the magazine cover, we know that's not aligned with health in any way. Um, and it's same with anything that's super extreme. You're going to have to borrow a little bit from your health goals to become super fit or super competitive. So that's that's a given, right? Um, that's something to just be aware of for people that uh, you can definitely overload uh, the stress uh, systems of the body by by trying to hit all your all your checkpoints. And gee, how do I know if I'm one of those people? If you're hungry, bloody eat some food, right? Just like Matthew said, and then um, you know go from there. Uh, but if you have excess body fat and you're frustrated, it's not coming off. Um, the most sure path to do that is going to be uh, minimizing insulin production in the diet. That's by cutting out the refined carbohydrates, cutting out the industrial seed oils, which promote insulin resistance and allowing stored body fat to come into center stage. And one little uh, add on to that, which is really important to mention is over-exercising and depleting yourself through a pattern of exhaustive workouts with insufficient recovery is going to trip going to uh, uh, keep fat on your body and uh, strip you from uh, lean muscle. It's going to have the opposite of the intended effect that you want to get lean. So over-exercising and will also prompt uh, the appetite center in your brain to overeat as a response to an overly stressful exercise program. So you can definitely err on the side of doing too much exercise when you're trying to drop excess body fat. So the most sure way is to clean up your diet and make sure that you're exercising appropriately rather than extremely. So now we get to the exciting topic of uh, explosive high intensity workouts. And we've talked some about the, um, to, to, the, um, to the category of the extreme endurance athlete. We've been talking about triathlons and long distance running and people that are uh, pursuing these ambitious goals. And so if that's you listening and you're really all about running the marathon, uh, going for a 70.3 or an Ironman distance triathlon, your greatest return on investment is going to be from 
doing endurance activity. And you're going to have minimal payoff in, in, uh, in respect to the energy output required to go and get good at sprinting or uh, lifting heavy weights in the gym. And I think we see that with uh, the great uh, endurance athlete of the world. I don't think Kipchoge's in the gym uh, doing leg presses, nor are the guys who are guys and gals who are winning uh, the Hawaii Ironman. They're out there riding their bikes for seven hours a day. Same with the Tour de France guys. Uh, maybe in the off season, they're fooling around a little bit, but we don't have all the time and energy in the world. So we have to prioritize uh, the best use of our time for our goals. Now, if your goal is to run a marathon or complete a triathlon, we know that that is not very well aligned with health, longevity, anti-aging, uh, vitality, hormone balance, immune function, and all those things. So ideally, if someone was just listening to the show saying, how can I be the healthiest guy possible? That would be to build a basic level of competency in a whole bunch of different areas. Of course, cardio is important, but the main thing that I think is missing uh, in most fitness enthusiasts, at least the ones I see, uh, is the working the high end, the explosive stuff. And what most people do uh, is too much cardio. So they're out there jogging around their neighborhood. They're on the stair climbing machine in the gym, watching television, and they're faithfully doing that however many days a week for however many hours, but they've never put any heavy weight on their body or put their muscles under resistance load, even for push-ups or pull-ups or things like that, or tried to jump up on a, a plyometric box uh, you know, 24 inches off the ground and jump back down and put that uh, bone density and things like that. Uh, sprinting, uh, you know, running up a, a flight of stadium stairs or running a few strips down the, uh, the soccer pitch as part of a, a workout protocol. So I think uh, we have an urgent need to uh, push the body once in a while to maximum output. And the incredible uh, hormonal cascade that occurs when you do a very short workout uh, such that the workout can have a payoff that's you know 10x factor to uh, going and going for an hour every single day with your jogging or your pedaling. And that includes the prominent goal of dropping excess body fat. So literally the science has shown that a 10 minute sprint session where you're of course warming up, I'm not counting all that time, but where you're working hard for only two or three aggregate total minutes of the workout, a few minutes of maximum intensity output can have a better impact on fat reduction than hours of cardio. Um, one of the reasons is because cardio stimulates appetite where the high intensity explosive stuff is too short to, uh, you know, bother with your appetite, but your metabolic rate and all, all these adaptive processes occur for up to 72 hours after even a very short workout. It's called uh, non-exercise activity thermogenesis post-exercise activity thermogenesis, where you blast yourself for a little bit, and then you're uh, you know, in inferno of fat burning for hours and hours after. So we have to, it's like an obligation to go out there, put your body under resistance load through some form of resistance training that could be straps and bands, it could be heavy weights, it could be machines, and it could be your own body weight as simple as that. If you're in a cubicle and you want to take a break every hour and go down for a set of 20 deep squats, guess what? Even if you're a fit person, you do 20 deep squats, you're going to start feeling the burn and you're going to feel in a one minute session, a tremendous fitness benefit, especially if you throw it in there a few times a day, uh, you know, for 365 days a year, it's, it's wonderful to kind of sprinkle in explosive output, even in the course of your busy day, we call those micro workouts, but also with the formal workouts that I'm, that I'm talking about, like doing a, a proper sprint session. 
Yeah, that's brilliant. I think everybody, everybody needs to really focus on their strength. Everybody needs to really focus on doing these explosive exercises because for overall overall health as well and for longevity as you get older, your muscle mass tends to decrease and you could end up going towards sarcopenia, things like that. But if you train, if you have explosive workouts, we're not talking long time. We're talking like you say, one minute to 10 minutes out of your day people can everybody can find 10 minutes in their day let's face it everybody can find 10 minutes out of their day just to do a few um static jumps or you know something explosive that can do a sprint down the street to the nearest lamppost everybody can do it and it's so so important because like you say you've got the the post after afterwards your body will continue to to burn afterwards and will continue afterwards with your metabolic rate and Although, like you said, if you're a professional triathlete, you, you, you need to focus on what's specific to you. And this, this kind of exercise could be known as an acute stressor on the body. And other things as well that you could help along the way of acute stressors, well, intermittent fasting could be one, but also we have things like uh, cold therapy and heat therapy. And I know uh, yourself, you have your own sauna and things like that. So tell us a bit like how cold and heat could, could help along the way too. Yeah, so you just made a nice list of acute stressors. One of my favorite hormetic stressors is the proper term. That means a brief, positive, uh, natural stressor that has an adaptive benefit is exposure to cold. And boy, the more you get into this subject and realize uh, how primal and how aligned with our genetic expectations for health and the amazing benefits that come out of brief exposure to cold water, uh, it, you know, you'll turn into an enthusiast in no time. And again, it's not something that's everyone misunderstands it out of the gate. Like you're crazy. Look at that video. You can see me on YouTube. It's called Brad Kern's chest freezer, cold therapy, where I jump into this uh, giant freezer. It's like a meat freezer with a top opening. Uh, that's uh, 15 uh, cubic feet. So it definitely fits a body in there, but I've, uh, emptied the freezer and filled it with cold water. And then I keep the freezer uh, on a timer for several hours a day to keep the water uh, at about 38 degrees Fahrenheit, not freezing, but uh, plenty cold to have a nice short experience. And when I jump into that water, I'm not going to say it's as uh, pleasant as jumping into the 104 degree spa, but it's giving me uh, this immediate sensation of uh, euphoria because of the the fight or flight response that it elicits. And so I'm getting the, these boost of these uh, mood elevating chemicals. One of them in particular is called norepinephrine and it's known as the motivation uh, neurotransmitter. So it, it contributes to motivation, focusing, uh, heightened and elevated mood. And you'll get a boost to that as soon as you jump into the cold water. I think anyone's familiar, especially in your climate where, you know, you might've had a, a winter uh, plunge into the sea on New Year's Day because there was an event going on in your town. And then you immediately rewarm into your robe or get into a hot shower. And you feel so invigorated when you're on the beach as soon as you exit the water, or maybe even when you immediately jump into the water. Uh, but as a practitioner, you can become skilled at overriding that initial panic response that causes people to scream and immediately exit the water. And you can learn to kind of overcome that shock sensation through uh, deliberate breathing is really a nice uh, connection here because if you can take control of your breath, you take control of the stress response. And maybe your listeners are familiar with Wim Hof, the Iceman from Holland and all the amazing uh, extreme feats of cold exposure and endurance he's done uh, using his breath control methods. Uh, but it's the same thing that 
people are doing in yoga and meditation where you're taking control of your breath, you form an intention. So I form the intention every morning to jump into this chest freezer that I'm going to appreciate the experience. I'm not going to stay in there too long where I start shivering and suffering and feeling negative. But as soon as I emerge, oh my gosh, I feel awake and, and alert and energized. And the research out of Finland is that even a very brief exposure into cold water is enough to uh, spike the mood elevating hormone uh, neurotransmitter norepinephrine uh, by 200 to 300% for up to an hour. So you actually feel euphoric and energized and alert and focused for uh, at least an hour uh, with this uh, hormonal burst that occurs when you enter the cold water. So it's better than caffeine for a morning wake up call. And I've become uh, really devoted to the extent that it feels like nothing to me. I don't have to motivate myself for it. It's not a big event or a big production to go in there. It's just part of my morning routine, just like jumping into the hot shower. And speaking of showers, that's a great way to get started and kind of get a sensation for uh, what cold exposure is all about. So even at the end of your nice, lovely morning shower, you can turn the handle over to cold and aspire to stay in there for let's say 30 seconds. And to do so, uh, get ready, form the intention before you crank the handle over and commence a series of deep diaphragmatic breaths where you're in total control of your breathing and you override that, uh, that shock response that's gonna cause you to pant and shriek. And when you get that cold water on your body and make sure you get it all over your body and your head and your, your front and your back, um, you're going to get out of that shower and you're going to feel invigorated uh, because of what the cold does in the, uh, in the immediate hormonal response. So that's a little bit about the, the hormones and, and the, uh, the biochemistry of what's happening when you're exposing to cold. But I also have a peripheral benefit that I like to mention. And that is that because I can discipline myself to do this every single morning, I believe that it carries over to making me uh, more focused, disciplined, and resilient against all other forms of stress and distraction that I face in daily life because it ain't easy. I always uh, tell a little story in my head uh, about procrastinating, like, oh, maybe I better sweep up the kitchen floor before I do my cold tub this morning. Or, you know, there's always some reason that you can make up that will come in so you can delay your workout or delay your diet <laughs> until, until the new year or whatever. Uh, but by becoming a uh, I'm not going to say a master, but an enthusiast of cold exposure, I believe that's contributing to uh, making me a more focused person overall. Yeah, I think everybody's in the same boat. Everybody does a bit of procrastinating every now and again. <laughs> Even myself, sometimes I think, oh, I, you know, what can I find to do before I go and do this? Everybody, everybody does that. So I'm pleased you said that as well. <laughs> Um, but yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's no, it's no joke. I mean, you, you're familiar with Tony Robbins, the, the big motivator yeah, that puts on the yeah. seminars and has pumped out uh, peak performance content for so long. He's a huge enthusiast of cold exposure. He has custom facilities built into all seven of his luxury homes around the world. So he can have constant access. You can find him on YouTube, jumping into this little tiny cold pool at his home in Florida. It's just a circle in the ground and it just fits a body. That's about it. It's like a little chamber. And um, he goes in there every morning. Morning. And his great quote about his regimen is that I am training uh, my mind to not hesitate, but to act. I'm telling, it's my mind telling my body what to do. And when your mind, if you think about that for a moment, when your mind 
can tell your body what to do, you become a very powerful uh, and in control person when it comes to all the ways that you know we're betrayed when when our mind sets these big ambitions and then uh, we we don't uh, comply at the end of the day. We we look at our our checklist and we didn't quite make it to uh, what our what our mind wishes. Yeah, that's right. And I'm pleased you put it like that because myself having dabbled in cold therapy, um, I'm, I think I'm up to about two minutes now in the shower. And I did I did start with 10 seconds, 20 seconds, 30 seconds, and, and now up to two minutes and nowhere near yourself at the moment, but I'm keeping going there. And what I am actually finding, even in these early stages, is that is helping me in, with my triathlons. It's helping me focus more. It's helping me like you say, with your breathing, and I think breathing is a big one as well. If you can control your breathing just every day, just, you know, breathe through your nose and make sure you're in control of yourself, then that will translate to your triathlons, to your runs, to your, to your walk around the block, whatever it is you're doing, because simply because you're in control of yourself, you're not losing that um, control that you see a lot of people, you know, panicking about and things like that. So cold therapy and, and extreme heat therapy and saunas, things like that can help you stay in control. Basically, like you say, get your mind in control of your body. And I'm pleased you put it like that. It's a really, really nice way to, to focus on it. Thank you. Now, we talked a lot today about um, seed oils and carbohydrates and things like training, which is still perhaps not great, but some people are coming around to the, the math method. So how do we go about getting the word out there? How do we go about changing this mainstream from these mass produced foods on our shelves? How can we try and get our word out there? How can we change it from the mainstream? <laughs> That's a great one because I've been on this journey for 12 years uh, particularly the ancestral health journey. I've been about health and fitness my whole life, but uh, when we had this radical new approach to eating that was in direct conflict with conventional wisdom and what the United States government was saying and the governments across the world and the westernized society of telling us how to eat and all the, uh, you know, the information that's been exported to, to everyone sort of uh, believing and being socialized uh, that this was the way to do it and that was the way to do it. And same with the fitness industry. You know, you want to go in there and push yourself and get all sweaty like the female in the commercial who's uh, advertising the Peloton bike and wiping yourself with a towel because you work so hard. And so we get socialized with all this messaging that, as we talked about earlier, is flawed and dated and downright health destructive. And so it's a kind of a, a slippery slope to be on, to be advocating something different than what's shown on the billboard, the, the television commercial, and what your doctor is telling you in many cases when it comes to diet. We have uh, physicians, especially in this country, who are sounding off with dietary recommendations to their patients. And they have absolutely no authority, no experience, and no education in diet. Uh, but somehow they elevated this position in society where whatever the doctor says, they must know what they're talking about when it comes to human health. And it's not uh, the same as caring for human disease. I love going to doctors. I'm from a family of doctors and medical professionals. And when I'm sick or need my uh, burst appendix removed from my body or I'm going to die, oh man, I love the doctor then. But I don't want to, people to overstep their bounds and be dispensing advice where they're not qualified or haven't uh, kept up with uh, breaking science and emerging thought and um, you know all the uh, 
uh, all the people that are stuck in the mode of uh, dispensing flawed and dated advice or advice that works for them. And so they think it's going to work for all their clients or all their followers and listeners. That's the stuff we have to be really careful with because it can be downright destructive for people. So um, I guess what I'm trying to say in this uh, comment is when someone is open and ready to receive, that's when you have an opportunity to make a contribution to their life and their health. But until that day comes, you're wasting your energy and you're quite possibly doing a disservice, especially to yourself and maybe even to them. And so I have wasted tons of breath, tons of energy, uh, tons of passion that I could otherwise direct to someone who wants to listen uh, in, in the direction of trying to change people who are not ready and willing to change. And that's kind of heartbreaking sometimes. It might even be loved ones, people close to you. Uh, you know, I want my children to be healthy and I want to be a role model always for, for them to uh, live a healthy life. But if I'm inviting my 12-year-old my out for a five-mile run and the 12-year-old doesn't want to do it, then you gracefully depart and do your own five-mile run, knowing that as that child's brain gets programmed and absorbing all the environment and influences around them, that they're going to have, um, you know, you're, you're going to be making a positive impact by walking your talk and leading by example, rather than forcing them <laughs> to go out of the house when they don't want to do it. And I, I learned that my kids are adults now, but I learned that they were the ones in charge of the journey. And anytime I tried to manipulate that or cajole them into something that they weren't ready for, or that wasn't, didn't feel right to them, uh, it was a really bad idea. There's a great therapist that wrote a book, I forgot the title, but he said, um, uh, when, it's a, when it's a child's idea, it's usually a great idea. And when it's the parent's idea, it usually turns out to be a bad idea. So just in the terms of the parent child, I thought I'd mention that, but also with your peers or your coworkers or people that you have a, a chance to influence, and maybe you're a little further down this road of healthy eating and nutrition and fitness than they are, uh, it's best to sit back, lead by example, and notice those times when the receptivity is there, and then you can engage in a conversation. So I've gone from Mr. Enthusiastic guy like you might have heard on this podcast to someone who if you're sitting in the airplane seat next to me or whatever um, I'll make a few opening comments and if there's a uh, you know a chance for engagement that's great I'm happy to share uh, but if not then you know you you uh, focus your energies elsewhere yeah that's brilliant and then that's kind of the reason why I ended up starting this podcast it's because at the start, you just want to tell everybody and you just want to make everybody aware of what's going on. And then you kind of realize that people are not, not everybody's ready to hear it. So it's best just to wait for them and uh, build something uh, around yourself uh, and lead by example, like you say, and then they'll come to you when they're ready. So, but um, in terms of changing people's opinions, all you can do is just do your best and live by example. Like you say, do your best and, and put it out there. And then hopefully they see what's going on. And there is more and more of these podcasts around and more and more people are now turning to low carb and, and things like that and nutrient density. So they're, they're making sure that they're, there's more and more people coming and the more people we can get over to this side, then the louder our voices are going to be, which is, which is a great thing. And I really value your time today, Brad. I didn't realize we've been talking way over an hour and our time's just flown. Um, there's one thing I wanted to say, and I've written a, a questionnaire on the end of my piece of paper and I've put, please remember to ask Brad this. And that is, what would you say to your former triathlon self? If you were to go back and meet yourself, let's say 20 years of age, what's the one thing you've got one thing to say to him? What are you going to say? Oh, nice. Wow. Wouldn't that be fun 
for all of us to uh, reflect upon going back and, and giving some advice. Um, I guess I would uh, encourage the, 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 young, uh, the young person to believe in themselves and, and trust themselves uh, because it's so easy for us to get off track and to look outside ourselves for answers and you know, cultivate that intuition and, and have maximum belief and trust in yourself that uh, things are gonna work out. And um, you know, the, the, the stress, the anxiety, the negativity doesn't, doesn't contribute to anything except for you know, less, of a, less of a fun experience. So there's my, there's my answer to the young, the young guy going back in time. That's great. So just follow your heart and just go with what you believe in because everybody will try and influence you. Everybody will tell you it's this. Everybody will tell you it's that. But if you go and you can commit to 100% in what you believe in, then I think if anybody is to take anything away from this podcast today, it's that. Focus on your goal, focus on what you believe in and make sure you go head down straight for it 100%. That's, uh, that's brilliant. I'm pleased you answered it like that. Now, I know you've right got on. a book coming up about, is it Improve Your Triathlon Time? Um, that, and, and that, yeah. title, that title just draws me in. <laughs> Tell us a little yeah. bit about what that's about. A quick little summary, if you, if you don't mind. Hopefully people get the, the double meaning there, how to improve your triathlon time. I, I thought long and hard about it. So um, it's, it's really about a healthy balance approach to the sport, cultivating intuition rather than a robotic regimented approach, which so often can throw you off track and lead to the number one mistake that we see of overtraining and, uh, you know, kind of an insecure, uh, frantic approach to the sport rather than being patient and confident and, and stepping on the starting line with that wonderfully uh, process oriented, pure mindset that I described with my early story. And that's when you can have the most fun out there, win or lose. But generally, when your approach is correct and you're cultivating that intuitive process and making good decisions every day, that's when you uh, perform better anyway. Brilliant. Thank you very much for your time today, Brad. That's been great. Oh, just, to, just one thing. Tell our um, listeners whereabouts they can find you and follow you and, and, and join in with all your great things that you are doing. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, bradkearns.com. You can go there and get wowed by the videos you mentioned, like me breaking the Guinness World Record for the fastest hole of golf ever played or jumping over the high jump bar as an old guy. I have my books there. The book we mentioned is coming soon since uh, this recording is in 2020. So look for that in 2021. Numerous other books, video courses, ways to connect with me. I'd love for you to listen to my podcast called the Get Over Yourself Podcast, where we talk about all these great matters that you cover on your show too, and uh, have some little twists here and there and some interesting guests. We talk about things like relationships and uh, you know healthy relationship dynamics, because I feel like if you're nailing your exercise and diet goals and all that great stuff, but you have some dysfunction in your life, then you, know, you, could, you could ruin a lot of your best intentions. So I'm trying to get this holistic approach to uh, being healthy and happy and fit and all that great stuff. So uh, a pleasure to connect with you too and keep up the good work, man. Thank you very much for today, Brad. That's been absolutely brilliant. Thank you very much. Absolutely great to talk to Brad. He loves to promote a healthy lifestyle full of great nutrition and life's hacks. But I just want you all to know that you are unique and individual with your own specific goals and aims. And whilst I can point you in the right direction and bring on guests to the podcast who have their own way of doing things, 
it's only you that can refine the process for exactly what you want. Remember not to work too hard, but also do enough to get you to where you want to be. No one path will be the same, but if you all follow the right principles, you will be your optimum self before you know it. So now we're going into 2021. And if there is a New Year's resolution everybody can follow, it is to get rid of those processed, high-carbohydrate foods full of all sort of extra preservatives and those seed oils that we don't really want in our diets. Why not personalise some acute stressors? Have a go at fasting, some high-explosive exercise, or try out cold therapy. What's the worst that can happen? I'll continue to bring on guests to the podcast to help you refine your own lifestyles and nutrition. But thanks for listening this year. Uh, You can ask me questions anytime. You can see my recipes and find out more information at humannutritionlifestyle.com. There's the opportunity to follow our Facebook group and just follow us on Instagram, Human Nutrition Lifestyle. So there's no shortage of information there for you. But for now, I'll see you in 2021. Fingers crossed for a great new year for everybody. Take care, have fun, and I'll see you next time.